0: Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I hope you are safe and well, wherever you are, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'm one of your co-hosts for this podcast, Shomana Xavier. Today we are joined by Dr. Jyoti Gulati Balachandran, who is an assistant professor of history at Pennsylvania State University, to discuss her new book, Narrative Past, The Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat circa 1400 to 1650, and it's been published by Oxford University Press in 2020. The book explores the complex power of Sufi texts in creating Muslim communities in Gujarat from the 15th to the 17th centuries. Through a deep analysis of genealogical and biographical texts by Sufis, such as those of the Surawardi order, the study situates a social history of Gujarat Balachandran focuses on three main Sufi saints, one being Ahmed Qattu, whose disciples chronicled his life and legacy through various literary productions in Arabic and Persian. The complex processes of textual production and architectural developments, such as Sufi shrines to these Sufi teachers in in Gujarat, showcases a vibrant and complex history of Islam, one that hinges on Gujarat sultans, Sufi sheikhs local Muslim communities, and much more. The book provides significant insights into Gujarat Sultanate and Sufism and their relationship, while also further complicating the history of medieval and early modern South Asian history. This book will be of interest to those who think and write about Sufism, especially in South Asia, South Asian Islamic history, sacred spaces, and textual production, and much more. In our conversation today, Dr. Balachandran and I spoke about some of the challenges of completing a research, especially looking for um, archival material, the context of multi-glossic Gujarat, some of the diverse Sufi sources she engaged with and how to approach Sufi literature as not merely hagiographical sources, but um, as texts that provide us other uh, insights. The life and legacy of Ahmed Kathu, Sufi shrine dedicated to him and other figures, sacred spaces, and its relationship to sultans, and much more. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Jody Gulati Balachandran about her new book, Narrative Past, The Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat from 1400 to 1650. Hi, Jody. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you doing? Uh, Thanks, Jovna. Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. How about you? I'm doing well. You know, it's it's the late summer, and we're all the pandemic um, is ongoing. So I'm I'm grateful that you have given up some of your time to chat with us about um, a book that came out um, with Oxford University Press, Narrative Past: The Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat, circa 1450 to 16. Uh, sorry, 1400 to 1650. Um, we like to start our podcast. Um, to get to know the author a little bit. So I wonder if you could give us a sense of, you know, your own intellectual journey and perhaps what led to this particular project.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, thanks, Shobna. And, you know, once again, you know, thanks for having having me here. It's it's a pleasure.
0: Um,
1: you know, so a lot of my formative training, especially in terms of how to read Sufi texts and pose new questions to mater- to, to to such material, um, it took place in Delhi University where well, I was a graduate student and I was fortunate to have the late Sunil Kumar, a historian of the Delhi Sultanate, as my teacher and mentor. Um, Sunil's you know, highly nuanced work on the complexities undergirding the expansion of a Muslim community in North India in the 13th and 14th century was actually very influential for me in, in multiple ways. Uh, for example, in thinking about the possibilities of recovering historical change in Sufi texts that can sometimes read very synchronic and formulaic um, or reading Sufi texts, not simply as sites of religious and theological concerns, but also as uh, narratives that shaped how elite sections of the Muslim population related to and wrote about their past. Um, and also that these narratives are you know, very much in conversation with other Persian texts that are being produced at the court of the Delhi Sultans. And, you know, this was, you know, when I was a graduate student at Delhi University, it was also the time where, you know, the work of scholars like Simon Digby, Carl Ernst, you know, Richard Eaton, Niall Green, and others had really shifted the way historians were uh, thinking about Sufi texts. And their collective work really brought uh, Sufi literature into mainstream historiography on the medieval and early modern South Asia. Um, so, you know, while I was doing my coursework as a graduate student uh, in Delhi University, I actually uh, went on to do, a, to do an MPhil where I had a first-hand experience of working very closely with a Sufi text uh, under Sunil's uh, supervision. Uh, this was a 14th-century taskira or a biographical compendium of Shishti Sufis and their disciples uh, called the Seattle Aulia. Um, and one of the key aspects of my research then had been to expand our understanding of the social ties that bound learned Muslim men um, in the 14th century. Uh, So, uh, you know, I showed in my info dissertation that if we followed the structure of this text, such social ties are completely obscured um, as the author uh, privileged uh, the multi-generational ties between Jishli P's and their proliferating circle of spiritual successors. But once you start connecting these men through all kinds of other details present in their biographies, you see how they're also related. Uh, you know they, they are related to family ties, matrimonial ties. Many studied together under the same teachers. Some were also friends and so on and so forth, right? So this aspect of recovering social history in Sufi texts among you know many other lessons I that I learned through my research um, stayed with me as I pursued my PhD at UCLA um, um, under you know the guidance of Sanjay Subramaniam and and Nine Green. Um, my focus on Gujarat though was was not really uh, you know planned in any in any in any way. Uh, it really emerged in part through the coursework I did at UCLA, where you know we often uh, talked about Gujarat's maritime context. Uh, but very little in terms of what was happening in the region away from its coastline so you know at some point uh, the question of what's the state of sufi lineages and history in gujarat became very central to my historical inquiry so i knew a lot about sufis in north india and the deccan but hardly anything in the context of gujarat i mean i couldn't think of a single uh, you know prominent sufi from uh, from medieval gujarat so that question then, you know, guided me through my research, uh, you know, as I collected several articles and, you know, publications in Urdu, especially um, mm-hmm. on Sufis like uh, Ahmad Khattu and the Surabadi Contemporaries that I talk about in my book, you know, from the 15th century. And uh, eventually ended up locating a diverse set of Persian materials that were produced between the 15th and the 17th, um, you know, centuries. So, uh, you know, so in many ways, you know, and, uh, this was really, this, is, this, this, this really kind of was a defining uh, moment for, for my uh, dissertation. And then I went on to further develop my ideas in, in the book, Narrative Past, to try and write a broader history of state and community formation um, in 15th
0: century Gujarat. Mm. It's so fascinating because I think this is probably one of the first books that I've read that had such a focus on Gujarat, which I, as I was reading, I was like, oh, I, I haven't had this history of um, Sufi kind of texts and spaces and mm-hmm. in, in kind of readings of South Asian Sufism generally. So I've definitely appreciated this aspect of it. Um Another aspect that I appreciated, which you kind of shared with us in terms of your own intellectual journey, is just your engagement with text are so rich and um, and so textured that I just um, really loved it. Were there, you know, challenges for you methodologically? I know in your introduction, you kind of talked about how you were traveling and, you know, came upon some of these private, um, um, you know, archives that people were able, willing and able to share with you. And that really kind of set Project forward, but I imagine it was kind of a daunting process to go and look for these texts, especially when you perhaps weren't quite sure how to look for them. So, can you share with us some of that process and what the challenges and perhaps pleasant surprises were along the way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this is uh, this is the fun part of research, right? The unpredictability of what you're going to discover, and and also the kind of people you end up meeting while you're doing a fieldwork. But as i just mentioned, right, a lot of it. Um, uh, you know, I, and I have to say that a lot of credit for doing, you know, some of the groundwork um, at, with respect to uh, these 15th century Sufis and the kind of texts that they produced, you know, was done by an earlier generation of scholars like you know, um, uh, you know, B. A. Tramizi or um, Ziauddin Desai. Um, though much of, of their publication was not really available outside. Of the Indian subcontinent, uh, but I was led to uh, some, you know, archives in Gujarat really through their writings. Um, and once I knew, uh, you know, the the kind of you know places that actually are going to contain the, the are going to have the original you know Persian manuscripts, that in really became a matter of you know going there and 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 talking to people working in the archives and trying to you know get uh, get copies of those manuscripts. So luckily in in Ahmedabad, there is a Pir Muhammad Shah um, Library. It's a shrine uh, libraries attached to the shrine of, uh, of a Sufi, and they actually have a wide collection of, uh, of manuscripts in Persian, Arabic, and also in Urdu and Gujarati. And and that that really became the primary site for me, uh, where I found a lot of these a uh, lot of these lot of these texts that I that I talk about in my book. And you know there is also this collaboration. Uh, between the, the Shrine Library and the Iran Culture House in Delhi, where they're kind of digitizing many of these manuscripts. So mm-hmm. so that was really helpful. It's the kind of the information you, that you don't really find until you actually go there, right? Um, like, I'm sure it happens with, with many of us. So um, until I went to the Piedt-Mohmarsha Library, I had no idea that I could actually also go to the Iran Culture House and get digital copies of these texts. Um, you know the other the you know, the other kind of more challenging aspect um, of doing of doing research was that and I, as as you pointed out I mentioned this in my book that there there are still manuscripts that continue to be uh, housed in private collections um, and there are also other shrine libraries that have manuscripts but they are not uh, easily accessible to to scholars for research. So at some point, I had to make a decision of how far I wanted to go. And, I'm, you know, I've, I feel I've barely scratched the surface. There are a lot more um, uh, stuff that is out there uh, waiting, to be, uh, waiting to be explored. Uh, but uh, on the flip side, uh, because of spending time in Gujarat, I was able to meet people who were really uh, excited uh, by the fact that I was interested in learning about uh, these 15th, 16th century Sufis. And, you know, several of them actually were descendants of the Sufis that I talk about in the book. So they were very excited about my project. And then one of them actually, you know, opened his library to me, his private collection. And that was really a high point for me to actually go to Mangrol, which is kind of so far away from Ahmedabad. I remember going with my husband and, you know, I had an infant at that time. and um, and uh, And this person just kind of opened his house to my family and he took out... All of these manuscripts that he had, he showed me uh, this long genealogical chart or shajra, uh, and as well as other manuscripts that were, you know, sadly crumbling away. And he was very much involved in transcribing whatever he could uh, from these manuscripts and also get them published and get them out there. So, so that as I said, that was like a really it was it was it was you know I, I don't I I don't think I still. Um, Uh, I can claim that I have uh, the full knowledge of the the full breadth of manuscripts that were produced in the period, um, you know, during the period that I'm working on. But, um, you know, but I, you know, through the generosity of several, several people in Gujarat, I was able to uh, gather enough material that I could
0: actually start thinking about some of the questions that I raised in my book. Mm, it's so fascinating, and yeah, the kind of the epithet, the introduction of the book starts with with you going to this individual's house and him sharing the genealogical chart and placing himself in was like just mm-hmm. such a fascinating, um, in like something as a reader, I just was like so enthralled by, and I think this really kind of gets at what you're doing in the book, which is the the living reality of the text that you're you're engaging with, which I think is so fascinating. Um, so I really appreciated that story, um. I wonder if we, there's quite a few uh, aspects or moving pieces of the book. And so I wonder if we could kind of tackle a few of them and then set up kind of the broader arguments that you're engaging with. And I guess the first thing is kind of the the landscape of um, 15th, 16th, and towards the end of the book, 17th century Gujarat that you're dealing with. So can you, what should we readers or listeners know about um, the, the geography or the context into which um, you're engaging these texts and these Sufis, and that is of Gujarat, and perhaps also something about that, the multi-glossic, and you're kind of alluding to it already, kind of the different linguistic traditions that are informing Muslim communities and kind of state relationships in these settlements that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, for for those listeners who are not familiar with the the region of Gujarat, this is a region in the northwest part of the Indian subcontinent um, along the coastline of the Arabian Sea um and as i have an, you know as i discussed discussed this quite a big quite a bit in the introduction to my book uh, i gujarat is now a modern state in 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 modern india right so this is this is but that's not that's not those are not the boundaries that i am looking at that state in in modern india came into existence only in 1960 so um, one of the things i want the listeners and the readers of my book to be aware is that you know as i look at uh, the region of Gujarat, the region is actually, you know, kind of historically um, defined. Right? It's, it's, it's contingent, it's, its definitions, its understandings are contingent on, on the, the time period that we're looking at and also, you know, whose perspective that we, we are privileging. So in my book, Clearly, I'm privileging the perspective of Sufi masters and, and their disciples who are writing in Gujarat between the 15th and the 17th uh, century. But having said that uh, there is this general idea by the 15th century that one one finds mention uh, mentions to uh, to the region of gujarat that there is a political sense in which gujarat is understood right? so this is kind of the political domain of uh, of uh, of the Gujarat sultans who come to power in the 15th century in this region, and before them you had the Chauhuyas who ruled, uh, you know, uh, in, the, in the same in the same geography. So there is this. So Gujarat is understood in those kind of uh, in, in that political sense. Um, and uh, but again, if you were to look at the Sufi texts that um, I that I that I have that I've worked on, Gujarat also appears as a spiritual dominion. Uh, it's a dominion that is led by the Sufis and their and their descendants, um, uh, and as you know, as you kind of mentioned, this sort of multi-glossic uh, uh, kind of environment in Gujarat, uh, you know, this is this is this is the time where you also see, very much like other other parts of the Indian subcontinent, an increasing uh, literary vern- uh, vernacularization, right, where vernaculars are increasingly used as modes of literary expression. So in Gujarat, we, for example, see the literalization of Gujarati and, and Gujari, uh, which is, you know, Gujarati-inflected uh, Urdu. Um, and uh, of course, you also have languages like uh, the Upper Bransha and Sanskrit that have a much longer history of literary production in Gujarat. And then you have, uh, you know, Persian and Arabic, um, the languages that I focus on in in my book. Uh, and even, you know, when you're looking at these Persian and Arabic texts being produced in, in a 15th century, 16th century Gujarat, uh, you also see an increasing application of vernacular vocabulary in these texts, um, as well as you know, Sufi compositions in, in Gujari uh, later on. So, um, you know, so pretty much like, you know, the, the religious landscape of Gujarat, where you have, you know, you know, Jan pilgrimage centers and Jan temples, and you know, you have the presence of, you know, the Ismaili community. You know, you have Sufis of different spiritual dispensation. Very, very much like the, the, this, this kind of religious sectarian landscape. You have a diversity of um, of of languages and um, languages and, and texts in Gujarat as well. Um, so, you know, so this is kind of the larger uh, kind of the the. Kind of, if if I were to like situate Gujarat, uh, you know, these are some of the things that I would I would highlight. And as we move into the late 16th and 17th century, one of the big changes that you see is, uh, of course, in relation to the political dispensation in the region. So the Gujarat sultans come to power at the turn of the 15th century, but uh, pretty much by the middle of the 16th century, their 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 power is on the decline and. In the, in the in the last quarter of the 16th century, the Mughals take over, and Gujarat becomes a province of the of the Mughal Empire. So, some of the texts, some of the Sufi texts that I'm looking at, that are produced in the late 16th or the 17th century, are already produced under um, under this new political dispensation of the Mughal emperors in the region. And
0: and so perhaps we could talk about some of the Sufi literature and um, what kind of, you know, what kind of Sufi literature you are looking at. And you've already mentioned kind of uh, biographies as an example. Um, and what kind of questions are you asking when you're looking at those texts, you know, to consider a broader social history of this, this region that you've just described for us?
1: Hmm. Yeah, so there is a, a, a broad area of uh, Sufi literature. Right. Um, and again, one of the things that I point out to readers in my book is that I, I avoid using the term hagiography because when you when you look at these Sufi texts as hagiographical literature, it uh, obscures the considerable diversity and uh, authorial choices that lay behind the composition of each of these texts. So, in my book, I uh, uh, I think most of my texts would. Be categorized as um, either Malfuzat, which are these the, the collections of the public assemblies of Sufi sheikhs, um, and uh, the Taskirat, or these are the biographical uh, compendium or biographical compendia that 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 you know again can be arranged in a variety of ways. So uh, you know some of the questions that I uh, you know going with this awareness that these texts that I'm looking at, that each has, in, in each of these texts, the authors have made some very conscious decisions about what genre to write it. Because by the time you come to 15th century Gujarat, there's a long history of production, uh, of literary production by Sufi masters and their disciples in other places in South Asia. Right? So North India, the text that I alluded to earlier, uh, the Sierra Lalia, which is written as a Taskira of the Chishti Sufis and the disciples. You also have the Malfuzad text, so you know, you see that their 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 production in North India, you see them, you know, in the Deccan. So, uh, so as as I was looking at these texts, I was like, you know, why are they, you know, kind of kind of, you know, putting my text in conversations, if you like, with uh, with uh, with this larger history of Sufi texts in the Indian subcontinent? Because my authors were clearly aware of the of earlier texts that had been written in their genres, right? So, why are they choosing to write uh, their uh, their remembrances or their collections of the teachings of this of their Sufi masters and their, their lives in a particular, uh, particular genre. So that was like one of the questions. And then I think the other, as I moved, uh, you know, from the 15th to the 17th century, um, it also became clear to me that I need to put these texts in conversation with each other in Gujarat itself. Because most of the texts that I look at uh, focus on the lives and teachings of Three 15th century, three prominent fifteenth century sufis. So Ahmad Khattu is one, and then uh, to the two Surah that I talk about, Burhanuddin uh, Abdullah and uh, Sirajuddin Muhammad uh, Shahi Alam. Right. So, um, so you know what changes then in these texts as we move uh, from these earlier inscriptions of their lives in the in the in the fifteenth century, you know, moving into the seventeenth century, and that was actually that in some ways really. Um, of defined my, my book because I was through that I was able to, to, uh, to show historical change, to show how the decisions about what genre to write in enabled, for example, um, authors writing in the 17th century to synthesize material and theorize on who was important among their ancestors from the 15th century. So the genre of, uh, of a biographical compendium. Was uh, was much you know was much more kind of desirable in in that way than uh, than just a collection of the you know the public assemblies of, uh, of of their ancestors. So I think you know so so those were some of the ways in which I uh, kind of you know approached these Sufi, Sufi texts and and kind of and and you know accounted for the considerable uh, diversity that existed in terms of their genre in terms of their their narrative strategies, and and and, and really kind of uh, thinking, you know, making it very central to how I read these Sufi texts.
0: Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. And you've just modeled such an amazing way for us to really be sensitive to um, Sufi genre, but also like how to extract from them to understand broader context. I think, as you say, we often have a tendency to just like blanketly approach them as hagiographical geographical text but then we lose so much and so it was really fascinating to see how you you modeled it for us and so appreciative of that about this book and um, as you mentioned mm-hmm. um there are kind of three sufi personalities that you engage with um, and i think um ahmed kattu kind of stands out as one of the prominent ones in the book mm-hmm. and so maybe we could get into to him first and kind of talk about what what it is that we learn—I mean, perhaps who he is first—and then maybe we could shift to talking about some of the ways that his disciples um, uh, kind of wrote about him and what that means, um, you know, both as a literary exercise, but also what what they were trying to do in terms of positioning his authority and spiritual domain after his passing.
1: Yeah, thank you. No, that's really Sorry, awesome. yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I just kind of I, I love the opportunity to talk about Amit because that was really uh, such a fascinating figure for me, and uh, it was in part fascinating because actually when I went to Gujarat and I learned about his tomb shrine, I was just blown away. I was like, why don't we know about this Sufi more? <laughs> because yeah. his like tomb shrine complex, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about that later. But it was just, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just kind of so uh, so huge right it was it was a really really large complex and so it clearly uh, uh, you know told the visitor that this was somebody very very prominent uh, that somebody spent a lot of money in in maintain in in kind of you know building this up um, but uh, but so who's, who who's Ahmed Khattu? um so you know unfortunately Ahmed Khattu is not like you know one of the kind of the more um you know uh, you know he he didn't he didn't belong to a very prestigious sufi lineage he's somebody he's not like one of the chishtis or the soraverdis who were extremely popular in south asia um in the in the medieval period um he is um uh, and also you know i should also preface that you know of course much of our understanding of who he is and you know what he did in his life really comes from these texts that his disciples wrote around the middle of the uh, around the middle of the 15th centuries, and, and these disciples, of course, spent a lot of time with them, but him, sorry, um, in um, in in Gujarat. But he, you know, we uh, you know, so we know from these uh, texts that he is somebody who was actually born in Delhi to a family of military commanders, and um, uh, apparently there was a dust storm once in Delhi, and that you know he was a very young kid. He was basically he got lost in that storm was picked by a caravan of, uh, of, of traders um, who were moving uh, you know, between Delhi and, 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 the, and Rajasthan. And uh, they, so they took this young boy with them and brought him to a local Sufi, uh, Baba hawk. Uh, in in, uh, in a village called Khattu, which is in in, in northern uh, Rajasthan you know of course the, you know the disciples of Ahmed Khattu would later embellish this account uh, you know uh, as, as one would expect to say that baba Ishaq already had some kind of uh, uh, premonition that uh, that he was going to find a young boy who was going to become a great Sufi people um, but um, but we know that when Ahmed Khattu grew under the under the tutelage of uh, Baba Ishaq who belonged belong to the maghribi so like maghrib as the name suggests uh, maghribia as the name suggests is a sufi uh, sufi um, order that emerges in uh, in the Maghrib, northwest um africa but again uh, as i mentioned earlier unlike the chishtis and the soraverdis and other you know, the and the Khadris, who we know a lot about we actually do not have much information on the Maghribi Silsila Silsila in in the Indian subcontinent. Um, uh, At some point in the, towards the late, I believe it's 1379 actually, uh, that Baba Ishaq passes and uh, Elmer Khattu is really moved by his death and he he decides to leave Khattu. Um, and uh, start his his travels, and uh, you know once again you know, uh, we don't know how much of the of the travel that is related by his disciples was actually taken by the Sufi, but um, you know some of the important stops were again you know Delhi, um, a city that he was very familiar with because even when he was uh, with Baba Isha, he would often frequent Delhi and hang out with other Sufis and scholars in Delhi. And he, so we find him in Delhi. Actually, at the time that uh, Timur's army is sacking Delhi towards the end of the you know, 14th century, 1398-99, and there are these all these episodes that the disciples relate about how he was actually very helpful um, uh, to the prisoners, to the people who had been taken prisoners by the Timurid army, and you know, uh, at some point the word reached to uh, Timur, who then asked about his, about, sorry uh, to accompany him to Samarkand. so then there's a whole set of travels that we that we are are uh, told about uh, in Central Asia he's in samarkand uh, he um, he you know you know go makes all his way down to to Mecca and then finally at the turn of the 15th century we find him back in uh, in Gujarat uh, he comes back uh, and he is actually on his way to the Deccan so he's again, you know, somebody who is, you uh, know, I mean, looking for patronage, looking to find a place to, to, uh, to, you know, finding finding a residence for for himself, and um, and it is at this point uh, that we actually uh, there is a, a kind of a, he he ends up meeting with the uh, you know the, the zafar Khan who would actually end up becoming the first um, um, sultan of. The Gujarat Sultan, and uh, it is here that Zafar Khan makes this request um, uh, to Sheik Hamad, and he's like, "Hey, you know, uh, why why are you going to the Deccan? Why don't you settle here in Gujarat, find a nice spot, and and make your residence here?" So already, then we can see from this very point onward this kind of intersection between uh, between this kind of political authority and and and, and somebody like Ahmad Khattu, who can really um, serve to legitimize the the set of, uh, the, the, the power of, of Zafra Khan as he's trying to establish his independent authority in Gujarat. Um, so, you know, going back to the text and how they uh, relate the life of Amal Khattu and then what happens once he settles down in this beautiful spot in, in Sir by a um, we can clearly see that it, we cannot really talk about uh the kind of uh, the the formation of the state under the gujarat sultans and the um the kind of the uh, you know the establishment of sufi Khan Khan, the sufi residences in gujarat as two separate uh, processes that these are really conjoined processes. That what we see in the 15th century Gujarat from the very beginning is an understanding by these disciples that these are the formation of the state and the community and the Muslim community uh, spearheaded by the Sufis. These are actually conjoined uh, you know, processes, and so you find a variety of other examples where uh, where uh, Sheikh Ahmad Khadu and the you know other the subsequent sultans in Gujarat. Uh, you know maintained uh, maintained their relationship there was of course conflict at times but uh, but clearly you know we, we see them as as collaborators as especially in the, the way the narratives are defined these are um, these are not kind of mutually exclusive um, um, kind of entities that are guiding the Muslim community that they are working together in ensuring the expansion and uh, and, and uh, the prosperity of uh, the Muslim community in
0: Gujarat. Mm -hmm. it's so fascinating and I think chapter three on sacred spaces which I think we're both excited to talk about (laughs) Is the one that really gets at this, especially the relationship between the sultans and um, Ahmed Kutu and kind of the placement of um, Sufi tombs um, and kind of the sultans being entombed there. So, can we talk a little bit about this really, really fascinating and expansive space and kind of the relationship between um, the textual production? And there's a, an amazing line you have in the book, and I Wrote it down and says, the twin processes of textual production and physical enshrinement reinforced each other. And I think, the sh- you know, if we hear a little bit about the shrine space, we'll kind of get a sense of what you're describing in the text is also happening in kind of physical enshrinement.
1: That's right. And, you know, and these processes, I have to say that they are kind of, they take place differently in, in really, in, in with regard to Ahmed Kathu and his Suraavadi sort of contemporaries. In the case of Ahmed Kathu, there is you know, by the time, it, it, it appears, because it's very hard to date the two texts that his disciples wrote, um, um, except for the fact that, you know, they're probably written soon after Ahmed Khattu's passing. But that textual commemoration in the case of Ahmed Khattu is kind of, is, is accompanied by the interests by the Gujarat sultans and actually um, kind of enshrining his, um, his his tomb as well. Um, and, you know, the the, the shrine complex is... is is important because it is the context in which the texts of Ahmed Khattu's disciples are, are likely narrated. Like they provide the physical space for the community to come together, not only seek blessings from the buried Sufis, but also, you know, hear about his life and about his wisdom and about his, you know, about his, um, uh, you know, about his travels and about his teachings. So in that sense, you know, it's kind of, the, you know, texts really, you know, you know Texts become important to the popularity of the shrine, and of course, the the shrine reinforces uh, the need to have those texts. If you have this, you know, beautiful shrine complex, people would want to know who is this Sufi? What do we know about this? Right. So this kind of uh, reinforcement is very much at the heart of Amirkhatu's uh, uh, memorialization. Um, soon after, uh, soon after uh, he he passes. Um, of course, as you as you know uh, from that chapter, one of the other reasons why Ahmed Khattu's tomb shrine is so uh, important is because uh, when you have um, uh, you know we, there there is this Kuchra Sultan Mahmud Begra, who ruled from 1458 to 1511. He is actually very instrumental in further expanding the tomb shrine of Ahmed Khattu, and he expands this not only by Adding several palatial structures to this complex, so we have, you know, if you go, you know, you you you'll read about, oh, this used to be, you know, king's palace or queen's palace, and you still have actually a lot of those structures that have survived. You So you have all these pillars, and and you know this huge lake around the site that has recently been revived, so there's finally water again in this in this lake. Uh, but you have palatial structures, but also uh, but also the presence of uh, royal funerary structures. And it really struck me because, you know, I was always, you know, was like reminded of uh, Fatehpur Sikri, this kind of short-lit capital under the Mughal emperor Arbar, where you have the tomb of Selim Chishti within the the palatial compound in in Fatehpur Sikri. But here I was looking at this tomb shrine, which is actually completely the other way around. It's the tomb shrine first. And then you have uh, these palatial structures that are built around the tomb shrine, and it was supposed to be kind of a, a summer retreat um, for for the sultans of Gujarat. And um, then, of course, as I, as I mentioned, the presence of royal funerary um, um, structures. So you have Mahmud Begna himself, and um, two other Gujarat sultans and their wives that are buried in one section of this of this tomb complex. Um, so that you know, as you as you rightly pointed out, Ruvna, this was it was um, it was very clear. Uh, For me, both by reading the texts as well as actually uh, looking at how this tomb complex uh, was was constructed, that again, what we're looking at is this kind of uh, at, uh, looking at this you know, the formation of the Sultan and the Muslim community in the 15th century as really these kind of conjoined uh, processes. Um, and that uh, and I, I think I relate uh, relate this in my book that oftentimes when I you know visited Emir Hatun's shrine. I uh, would see other visitors who would uh, seek blessings from um, uh, from Ahmed Khattu, and then they move on to the part where the Gujarat sultans are buried, and they would go and pay their respects. And it's kind of very, uh, it's not very common to see somebody praying at the tombs of the you know of the of the, of the sultans. But uh, but again, there's this idea that if you if you if you're thinking about Ahmed Khattu, the you know the, the, the sultans were very. Um, uh they, they carefully uh inscribe themselves in the way Ahmadkatu would be remembered whether uh you know especially especially you know, whether you look at these texts or whether you look at the
0: this huge uh, shrine complex mm. and and you also mentioned in the book as you're discussing this relationship between the sultans and um amed specifically is how it so much contrasts what we perceive with the Shishti Sufis and their shrines of like a separation between. Um, you know, the political leaders and the Sufis, right? And in that they, you know, there's a popular story of coming in through one. If the, I think Nizamuddin Aliya, there's um, the emperor mm-hmm. comes through one door, the Sufi leaves to the back, mm-hmm. right? And there is mm-hmm. a contrast immediately of Ahmed Kutu. And you can see it in the pictures you have in the book is that the, you know, the sultans are buried night right next to him. and so Absolutely. It's really fascinating. Right. Um, um and so I feel like we could keep talking about spaces, you and I, but we should probably get to some other aspects of the book. Um, chapters four and five shift and they focus on some uh, literary productions by sorority disciples. Um, and they're also shifting a little bit in time period, too. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about chapter four's goals or kind of what you're doing, which is really um, I find really fascinating is, is what the establishment of um, uh, lineage or genealogy means for, um, you know, the particular community that you're engaging with, especially for the sorority community um, and what they're doing with text in terms of constructing lineage. And some of it felt like that it was, um, I don't know if transnational is the right word, but they were trying to locate themselves in the Gujarati context um, and what it meant, the significance of that for community formation. But the building of networks and using kind of this um, um process of building, you know, family tree or genealogy was very important. So can you say a little bit about what is happening here and why this kind of uh, literary production was important for the sorority, um individuals that you're engaging? Yeah, that's
1: an excellent question, Shobhna. And you know, again, it sort of reminds me of how much I enjoy connecting people, right? Uh, just finding these links and, you know, lineages and thinking about how they're connected with each other in multiple ways. Um, right. Thinking about the Sora right? It actually, you know, goes back to what I, you know, what I said uh, a few minutes ago about, you know, putting texts produced in the 15th century in conversation with those produced in the 17th century. Okay. Because all these texts, in one way or the other, uh, use Ahmad Khattu and his two 15th-century Sora you know, contemporaries as their as their focus. Uh, but it, you know, what is what? And so, one of the things that you see, and something that I Kind of detail in, in in the fourth chapter is that um, these texts that are written at this later point um, kind of lineage really becomes a central kind of organizing theme for for these texts, and it's for a variety of reasons. You know, first of all, you actually have the kind of historical depth now um, in Gujarat um, that that your the, you know, the, the ancestors of these descendants who are uh, writing these texts, you know, did not. They had just arrived in Gujarat and the literary production was not of, uh, of, uh, of the kind that could talk about their long-term association with Gujarat, right? So what you see in the 17th century texts is that becomes, that becomes possible now. It becomes possible to trace a lineage, um, also assert uh, uh, assert its regional um, uh, aspect that this is you know the ancestors come to Gujarat that these are uh, Sufis of Gujarat and to also then uh, show how uh, these Sufis who really in these texts appears appear as leaders of an expanding Muslim community um, they uh, you know you can you can you can actually now uh, in these texts trace that expansion because you know multiple family members, multiple uh, I guess generations of descendants. Who have gone on to, you know, marry into other families, other learned families. Uh, many of them have often left Ahmedabad and moved to other cities in Gujarat. So, uh, so you know, so one of the things I'm trying to accomplish at the fourth chapter is by kind of, uh, you know, looking at these images and uh, and be able to actually show. Uh, how this kind of community of, you know, elite Sufis and their descendants um, expands over the course of, you know, uh, the 15th and the 16th century, which is hard to do um, in, the, in, the, in the 15th century. But these texts are also important, uh, you know, in, in, in relation to what we find on Ahmad Khattu. Right? Because as I said, these um uh, the two uh, Sora Verdis, um, um, Burhanuddin Abdullah and Sirajuddin Muhammad, who actually at some point are also uh, students of uh, Ahmad Khattu, uh, they, you know, they, uh, you know, unlike, unlike Ahmad Khattu, they had families, right? So we have their descendants who also served as the spiritual successors of their ancestors. Um, and uh, so and so you know, Ahmed Khattu never, uh, never married, never had uh, had uh, had a son who who could be his spiritual you know successor. So his kind of lineage, when you had the tomb shrine and the text, but there was not an ongoing. Uh, that was not there was not a you know that was not like a continuing spiritual lineage that we can trace. Um, so in 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 the case of the Sora there is a much uh, much greater investment. Um, on the part of the descendants in the upkeep of the tomb shrines of their 15th century ancestors, and also then in the production of texts that would talk about the uh, the significance of their 15th century ancestors. And so what you see in the 17th century is something I call like the second uh, narrative moment. The first is in the middle of the 15th century, where you see mostly texts dedicated to Amat Khatu, not so much on the Soravardis. We have, you know, we have some references, but you know, we don't really know the extent of that uh, production, mm-hmm. reproduction. But suddenly, in the in the late sixteenth and early seventeenth century, there are a variety of texts that some of the descendants of the Soravardis um, uh, start uh, start start writing. And as they write, um, um, it's you know, they have to account for the presence of a very very important. Um, you know, contemporary of their 15th century ancestors? How do you account for the prominence that Sheikh Ahmed Khantu continued to enjoy in many of the narratives, especially like Mughal biographical compendia that are written in the 16th century and uh, 17th century, where you find very little detail on the Soravardis, 15th century Suravardis but you find a lot of detail on Ahmed Khattu. And so clearly these later Mughal biographers are, Lying on uh, Ahmed Khattu's fifteenth-century uh, texts, so it's, it's almost like there is there is this kind of lacuna. Right? There's like there's like not there's not much out uh, on the Sora fifteenth-century Sora and so you have a you know a couple of very prominent uh, you know, sort of the scholars and Sufis uh, who are descendants of uh, Sirajuddin Muhammad and Burhanuddin Abdullah who write a variety of variety of texts and try to account for. Um, um, for Amathhatu's you know, popularity, vis-a-vis their own ancestors. And so this is a theme that I pick up that you know as we think about Sufi lineages in Gujarat, you can see a sense of competition also, right? that there that there is this um, need to uh, kind of you know, and for uh, you know for, for for good reason to kind of really present one's own ancestor in a much more kind of superior spiritual uh, spiritual light. Um, you know, the Soravadi descendants are also, um, as I pointed out earlier, are working in a, in, a, in, in a context where the Mughal emperors are around and Mughal emperors are uh, capable of, and they do, um, continue to offer patronage and, and land grants and other kinds of forms of respect to these Sauravadhi descendants. So, um, so as I'm sort of thinking about uh, how these texts are relating Khamakattu's memory in their own remembrances of their ancestors, um, I kind of look at, uh, you know, look, look very closely on these, these two te- Saravadi, uh texts in my fifth chapter. To kind of understand what kind of changes or what kind of omissions or additions the Surabadi descendants made to their memory of their ancestors to account for Ahmed Kathu's popularity, and in these accounts, uh, Ahmed Kathu's you know authority is certainly not diminished uh, yeah. by, by any account. You know he's still recognized as a very prominent Sufi and a learned person, uh, but it's really you know his his it's subsumed within the uh, the, the the more prominent, the more illustrious lineage of of the Soravarti. So the fifteen the, the, the fifth chapter is really about kind of kind of showing uh, again how uh, we really need to put these texts in conversation with one another. So you know the text that one Surawardi wrote where he narrated 40 episodes from Sirajit and Muhammad's life, uh, we need to put that in co- in context with you know Sadhikaya, where you know, I have like hundred episodes written by another descendant. And so and that these these are not just kind of additions of more episodes that they are trying to achieve something. They're trying to put to rest any any kind of thoughts that people might have about you know, who actually is more important and who actually was more central to the flourishing of the Muslim community in Gujarat, the Ahmad Katu or the Saurabhis.
0: Mm. And yeah, your discussion of Saad H- Hikayat in chapter five is just so fascinating for this reason, because you could see how the author of the text is recasting authority and kind of looking at um, kind of, I guess, preserving the spiritual legacy of um, Ahmed Kathu, especially because he doesn't have descendants. Um, and in this way, I think one of the themes that you kind of talk about throughout the book is this idea of memory. And it seems that all of these kind of the text the space, um, to space and kind of the establishment of lineage is really trying to. Um, preserve memory and it's, it's interesting as you were just speaking it sparked this idea that you know um, family descendants are part of that memory and so what happens when Amit Kutu doesn't have that element of memorialization for him how does the text do other work
1: yeah absolutely yeah and that's kind of yeah that actually um uh, but but you know the 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 interesting thing here though is that you know despite, uh, despite not having any uh, clear spiritual successors or descendants right I mean it is really Amarkapu, uh, that receives a much more space in later biographical, uh, you know biographical compendia that are like really kind of subcontinental in their framework so they're looking at different regions of the Indian subcontinent you know like you know Abdul Haq Safarul Look at that, right? He's talking about all the you know, you know, different different parts of uh, the Indian subcontinent. And you have this kind of really long um, uh, narration of Amos Patu's life. And there's hardly anything um, on, on his contemporary Sauravati. So that's kind of a little bit of
0: like, irony there. Right, exactly, exactly. That's really fascinating. I'm, I mean, what is his legacy today? You kind of talk about this and the conclusion, what's happening with the um, Kathu's shrine space and it's become very touristic and popularized. But I mean, what is the legacy of him or perhaps even the other Sirawati um, teachers that you're engaging with?
1: Well, it's like, you know, in, uh, it's, uh, I would say it's like a legacy that's, that's you know, it's kind of, it, it can be considered a conflicted legacy, like depending on who you talk to. Uh, but in terms of, I mean, for, for a long, long, I mean, if you look at um, a colonial records, right, where they, um, uh, where they talk about the state of different monuments, you know, in Gujarat, um, you would find references to, you know, how much money they were, uh, they were spending for the upkeep of this shrine, of Ahmed shrine complex, or just kind of, you know, uh, giving descriptions of how uh, it was in a, you know, you know it was kind of deteriorating so and you know so for a long period of time um you know in the you know in the 18th 19th um you know large part of the 20th century this was kind of it was really a neglected site and also it, is, it also has to do with how the the geography and the region sort of developed where um the, this village of khatu became more and more disconnected from the the old historic you know Hemdabad. um and, it was like harder to get to and all of that Uh, but then there was like a highway put there and so it was it became way more accessible and then uh, there's like a local NGO that with the help of the ASI then sort of really focused on reviving because you know as I said it's it's a it's an enormous enormous site it's kind of hard to miss so uh, there was considerable interest from this uh, from this NGO to um, to not only kind of revive the, the 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 structures, just clear clear up the shrine complex, you know, get water back into the lake, um, but also involve the local community in um, in kind of preserving uh, preserving this structure. But because it's not um, again, it's very different from the two shrines of the Sora right? Because they are um, very much they have remained uh, in part because there has there, was, there has always been a clear Line of spiritual succession, which is also a line of family descendants, those sites have uh, remained very important sites of pilgrimage for people to to visit, uh, and I, I don't think that really changed um, changed much. And you know, you have even. Um, I think I talk about the Jahangir Nama where the Emperor uh, Jahangir talks about his visit to Ahmedabad and Mm -hmm. while he goes and sees Ahmed Kathu's shrine he actually is able to meet the descendants of the Surabhati Sufis that are buried in in the other two shrines so that again, that element of having descendants a clear line of descendants really shaped the way in which these two shrine um two shrines like developed um, and so now uh, with all of the efforts um, of these of this of this NGO um, yeah, it's, it be, it's become a, it's, you know, you look at brochures, um, you know, in Ahmedabad they'll say, hey, don't miss going to, you know, Surkage, you'll, <laughs> you'll find some kind of peace and quiet, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, from all of the kind of the hustle and bustle of like Ahmedabad. Um, okay. So it's, um, so it's, you know, now there's like a, you know, a, there's a Rosa committee, they have built a, a small kind of library. Um, but people really kind of, you know, and they, you know, and and you know, over the years, you've had all kinds of concerts. Um, people claim that there was one time where the, the Hindu festival of Janmashtami, you know, was celebrated in this tomb complex, kind of reviving this memory of this, uh, you know, again, Sufi is somebody who catered to all sections of the of the population, um, uh, and um, you know, so it's become a, a, a kind of a tourist site, which is. Very different from the experience of visiting the Sorawardi tomb shrines because they're just like you know many of the other shrines in in, in South Asia where there's a constant flow of people um, you know, coming and seeking you know uh, blessings. Um, and, and so they're they've kind of continued to be very much um, a part of the of the community uh, that 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 that's you know so when I visit you know I I visit Avakaruth's tomb as a tourist really, but when I'm visiting the other tomb I don't I'm like "Hmm, I'm not a tourist I'm like just like all these people coming there it's kind of a pilgrimage site you know more than uh, more than anything else so um, you know uh, so it's you know again as I said it's uh, um, you know one way or the other I think the thinking about the legacy right I mean again. The, the continued presence of these two shrines despite their different trajectory again um, is a is a very good reminder of the importance of these sufis you know in Gujarat in kind of defining the uh, defining the, the sort of the regional kind of landscape and and, and, the, and the sacred um, sec, sacred landscape in in Gujarat I mean you cannot just kind of wish them away they're very much there and they continue to be important.
0: That's so fascinating. Um, As we wrap up and taking a kind of a step back from all the wonderful details we've been talking about, what would you want um, our listeners or readers who are going to pick up your book to really take away as the broader broader aims or interventions that your project is making?
1: Um, You know, there um, uh, there are at least a couple of things, right? I mean, again, uh, you know, again, thinking about how I got to really think about Gujarat as the focus of my research, right? So that a lot of, you know, a lot of what we hear about Gujarat is oriented towards its, its maritime context, its relationships to other places across the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, and that is certainly very, very important. In fact, those kinds of connections um, uh, were important for bringing our idea of Sufis and other learned uh, Muslim men to Gujarat in the first place. And we know that the Gujarat Sultans clearly paid attention to uh, to the port cities that brought a lot of trade into the region and they also harbored links with uh, with with Mecca um, and so I guess one of the interventions that I you know that I'm hoping to make through this book is that you know that that while that's important let's also make sure that we understand that a lot of that's happening uh, in Gujarat is also connected to the historical processes the narrative processes that are shaping the past and the identity of muslim communities in other parts of the of the indian indian subcontinent so um, um you know so, uh, so again, if you want to understand the you know the role and reception of sufi texts that are produced in gujarat we really need to put them in conversation with this much longer history of the production of these materials uh, in north india and the deccan and how in, it was in these texts that a certain kind of texted past um, uh, was was being created by by a variety of uh, authors um, but you know I guess the other uh, other important um, question that I hope I uh, I'm, I'm able to provide some answer to is is about you know how, what do we mean when we say what is the history of the Muslim community in Gujarat, and more often than not, um, we start talking about the sultans, right? We talk about the military conquest of Gujarat sultans, and that. So this kind of equation uh, that uh, that the history of the Muslim community equates the rise of quote unquote Muslim power in Gujarat, I am I am trying to kind of dislodge that a little bit because uh, uh, I think that there were alternate contemporary ways. Of, um, of giving a composite identity to the history of the Muslim community in Qutra, right? For example, the ones that I recover in, in, Sufi, in Sufi texts. Um, and, and also that these alternate ways of giving historical debt to the Muslim community were not necessarily mutually exclusive to the manner in which the sultans were representing their role in the expansion and flourishing of a regional Muslim community. So, uh, as I've said before, right, I mean, really looking at the 15th century as very much um, uh, in the, the the state and community formation are very much conjoined processes. And that reading text produced both in the court of the Gujarat's Muthans and in the Sufi Khanhkas kind of reinforces um, uh, the importance of uh, this conjoint uh, process. Um, and I guess, you know, if I were to like, You know, add add maybe one more thing, Um, uh, and that is, of course, the you know the idea of like a regional community and a regional you know history. Uh, Kind of just thinking about the role of narrative texts in 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 placemaking and in region making. Um, uh, You know how these texts that I look at, uh, especially the ones that are produced later in the late 16th and 17th centuries, are able to very clearly express. Uh, this deep attachment to the idea and geography of Gujarat. So you know, there's this sort of this place making and region making in in these texts is is inseparable from the ways in which the authors are constructing their their past and narrating their past in these texts. So um, you know, and, and then you know that that's you know one of the reasons why I have narrative pasts um, in in the title of the book uh, because these kind of narratives are really um, kind of uh, the aspect of the narrative expression um, in a variety of texts is really central to how we understand region making, um, uh, you know, and, and also, um, uh, you know, re- regional kind of identity uh, making in the 15th century.
0: Fascinating. You've definitely given us a lot to, to think about and sit with. Um, As we are concluding our conversation, I wonder, Um, I know I want to recognize that we're in kind of an intense global moment and you've also just published a book and so hopefully hopefully you're sitting with that and honoring that and celebrating that Um, but I imagine that this book has probably left you with new questions or brought new projects to mind and is there something that you're working on or you're, you're thinking about um hoping that your next project could be
1: yeah no, it's you know as it as it turns out I'm actually um know, kind of reorienting towards the Western Indian Ocean again, uh, myself, okay. uh, so, uh, you know, so much for talking about Gujarat being connected to, you know, these larger <laughs> processes. Uh, I'm actually kind of, kind of looking towards the Western Indian Ocean again. Um, and, um, you know, there are, I I guess I'm trying to kind of, uh, uh, in my next project, try to kind of focus more on Arabic, uh, narrative. you know, my book is largely based on, uh, Persian text, a little bit of Arabic text, but uh, there are some significant um, texts that are produced in Arabic in Gujarat and um, in um, in Mecca by uh, by people who moved from Gujarat and settled in settled in Mecca. So I am um, kind of very interested in uh, 16th century you um, know figure uh, of uh, Qutbuddin Muhammad al Nara who is going kind to of be very important um, important uh, kind of religious scholars who gains a lot of reputation in Mecca after moving from. Uh, from uh, Nairvala or Patan in North Gujarat, um, and you know he's written a variety of you know Arabic texts, and all of you know, and and then you know you also have his contemporaries. We have somebody like you know Ulokhani who has written, and I talk about that text in my book. I was written Arabic history of Gujarat. You have uh, members of the prominent either Rusi Sultana who are in Gujarat, and you know they're also writing in Arabic. So kind of thinking about um, the, uh, the the scholarly connections. Um, in, in 16th century between gujarat and kind of the red sea region in a way that i can actually really kind of uh you know put, put these texts produced in diff- in different uh on different sides of the west indian ocean world, world in in connection in, in kind of in, in in you know kind of connect them and kind of bring them in, into conversation with with one another but you know the project is still at its very infancy so i have no idea how it's going to shape up but but uh but I'm pretty certain about, as I said, about my orientation towards the West Indian Ocean for my next project.
0: Well, that's exciting. It's always exciting when the project is just starting and it's like um, fun to think about the possibilities. Um, so I wish you all the best with that. And again, thank you so much, Ovi, for joining us and talking about your book. Um, I appreciate your time and congratulations again on a fantastic book.
1: Thank you so much, Shobna, and I really appreciate uh, you giving me this opportunity to uh, talk about my talk about my work. Thanks for reading it, and thanks for all your questions, and uh, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you.
0: Me too. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Jodi Gulati Balachandran about Narrative Past, the Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat, circa 1400 to 1650, which is published by Oxford University Press. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, stay well and take good care.